God bless you, saints. Certainly an honor and a privilege to be here uh, tonight, and we welcome you again to the broadcast uh, from HBT. Uh, we are glad to be able to do this today, and uh, this is uh, going to be our last broadcast, at least for this week. Lord willing, uh, we'll be welcoming you back in church on Sunday, and uh, we just trust that the Lord will meet with us. So on Sunday, uh, we want you to make sure you pay special attention to the deacons and make sure we do the separation and uh, all of the uh, safety measures that we uh, normally would employ. And um, we just want to make sure that we, Lord willing, that we don't uh, shut down again. So uh, we're looking forward to it. And uh, you be praying and that the Lord will meet with us. It seems like forever uh, when you're out a couple of services like that and you're, you're you know, you're not face to face and you're not in that atmosphere. Seems like you're forever. I know it's not so easy in your house uh, where, you know, you probably just had dinner and getting things ready for tomorrow and the kids are in familiar surroundings. I understand that. Uh, but, you know, I'm glad that we are able to do this tonight and able to gather together. So let me uh, just jump right in. We have a couple of prayer requests that we want to present to you, uh, a couple of concerns here, and uh, got a couple of mission pictures that I uh, just received from overseas, and then um, we'll jump right into the Word tonight. And as you can see from the title slide there, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, our default again, and uh, just trust it'll be a blessing to you. So uh, let me give you a couple of prayer requests first of all. Uh, we, we want to continue to remember uh, Brother Josh Godwin in relation to work. Uh, he is um, uh, going through some interviews, and uh, we just trust that the Lord will lead him and guide him uh, in the days that lay ahead. Lucas uh, is also in the process of looking for work after he graduates and making some decisions there. So uh, we've been praying for him and just trusting that the Lord will be his guide as well. Uh, the Clayvilles and the Reynolds are on their way back from Arizona. They'll be coming back in a couple of days. Um, Sister Connie Hughes, uh, she's got a cataract surgery coming up October the 20th, which will be next week. Uh, we want to remember Sister Anna Pritchard. And also Brother Tom Ward has uh, another a second knee replacement. He only has two. Uh, second knee replacement on October 27th. So if you're marking those things down, uh, we want to remember Brother Tom as he goes through uh, that procedure. Uh, the Saints up in Chivak, Alaska with Brother Andrew Boy Scout. Uh, just let me know that they are shut down completely. They closed the village because of the virus there. Um, there are several people in the village who uh, are infected and they have some of the believers also who are infected there. So we're going to ask you to remember they've been reaching out for prayer. And uh, I assure Brother Andrew that we surely would. When you're in a situation like that, you only have a thousand people in the village. Uh, they're all together. They're all in school together. Um, one infected person makes a big, big difference uh, in that part of the world. So they have completely cut off uh, any uh, connection with the outside world. So there is no, um, uh, the only way would be to get on a snow machine and go across the, uh, to the bay, which would be Hooper Bay, across the ocean. Uh, that'd be the only way. So that's uh, that's quite a daunting thing to be in the village there. I, um, I, I think that'd be pretty hard. I'm going to ask you to remember another need that we have, uh, and this is one in relation to vision books. Um, we have completed the Urdu 
translation for the Church Age book, and Brother Anwar and his crew have faithfully done that. The book is at the printers uh, right now, and uh, they're ready to go. They're just uh, waiting on a down payment, and then they're ready to go. And uh, Brother Anwar is running into some problems where uh, he's trying to get Christian material through customs in a Muslim country. So you can imagine what kind of challenge that would be. Now, if Brother Anwar was in Pakistan, he told me this would not be a problem because he would know how to do that. But because he's not there, he's got to try to navigate that from over here. And it's a little bit tricky. So uh, if you don't mind just remembering that in prayer, and we're just trusting to be able to work through the back channels and be able to get the books in there uh, so that the, the believers can have them. Uh, you got to remember that there's only about 3% of the population in Pakistan are, are, are Christian. And so they're not very open to Christian materials coming into the country. This is a, a problem uh, that we face um, in different measure uh, in a lot of countries overseas. And so if you don't mind uh, just marking that on your prayer list as well. And uh, we'll just make sure that uh, heaven knows about that need. And I know that the Lord already does. Uh, but we want to present it to him in faith and just trust that uh, the Lord will make a way. We're going to be reading tonight in the scripture in Proverbs chapter 13. So if you have your Bible or you're welcome to look on the screen here uh, with me tonight. And it reads like this. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. And the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Let's pray tonight. And as we pray, I want you just to take your need as well and just bind it together now with these requests that I've written here and just believe that because you're alone or you're sitting in your living room or sitting in your easy chair, uh, doesn't, it doesn't negate the fact that God can hear you right where you are. So it's faith that touches him, not geography. It's faith that reaches out to him and not just your circumstance that you find yourself in. So just bow your head now with me if you don't mind and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful again for this opportunity we have to be able to come into your courts with thanksgiving and praise in our hearts. And Lord, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ that you would just look upon these needs that have been represented, Lord, these concerns that we have upon our hearts. And I pray that you would be the great physician for those who are sick and those who need your touch. We are thankful, Lord, for the recovery of those that had the virus, Lord, and May, dear God, you just banish all the lingering effects, Lord, and help them to be completely well. We pray, dear God, that you would just be merciful to uh, the folks, Lord, up in Alaska and dealing with the virus in a closed-in village. I just ask, oh God, that you would just be gracious and, and just stem that uh, pestilence, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ and give them uh, healing and victory over that uh, disease, Lord, we pray. And Father, with this need in relation to the books going into Pakistan, we know that is just really the hand of the enemy that would try to keep something like the Church Age book away from believers in a Muslim country. And so we're asking now that you would just open the doors supernaturally, Lord, as only you can do. And Father, may you just make a way where there is no way. And Lord, we just have confidence that you who have inspired the translation of the book and the printing of the book, Lord, you made a way for all of that. We believe that you're going to make a way, Lord, for the for the uh, book to make it into the country. And so we place it into your hands now. And pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you would just move on their behalf. Father, bless this little time of worship tonight, Lord. And as simple as it is and unusual as it is, we want to make the most of it, Lord. And I pray that 
in in the ministering of the word that you would just take the the, the the comforting words of scripture, Lord, and just place them on our hearts. And Lord, help us, I pray, to put them in action in our lives. We pray for our families. We pray for a hedge of protection around about our assembly. And Lord, I just ask that you would just bless this next hour or so. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. And amen. And all the church said, amen. I'm looking for those amens to show up on my phone here tonight. So let me just show you a couple of pictures. This is uh, a group of folks in Zambia who have received uh, some of their books over there. Let me tell you, they are going far and wide. Uh, they are rejoicing over receiving these books in areas where they very seldom get visitors. And so this is really nice uh, for them to be able to receive those. And uh, they're just excited to be able to have the, their own books in hand. Uh, I've got a, a little clip that I want to show you on Sunday, Lord willing, uh, just to the worship there. Here's some of the believers who are coming to church. Uh, they got to walk across the river. And uh, when they uh, heard that Brother Davy Mwanza was coming uh, with some new materials for them, and this is, again, in a very remote eastern part of Zambia, northeastern part uh, where the people speak Bemba, uh, this is... Um, this is exciting, you know, for them, and they're coming far and wide through the jungle here and coming out across the river, and they got to step on those stones to get in there. Uh, they had some real significant damage to their vehicle this time on their on their travels because the roads are so terribly bad in that part of the world, uh, often washed out by floods. Uh, right now, we are working with uh, some translators and uh, the folks who are uh, posting translations on the hub. Uh, in the Chichiwa language, which is neighboring to Zambia. And uh, they're in, um, uh, in, the, in the country of Malawi, right next door to Zambia. And uh, so they're uh, very excited about the possibility now of having their translations in print. Uh, I was just communicating myself and brother Tim Dodd have been working with this group. And uh, we're excited now to be able to get some of their materials uh, in print for them. Lots of believers in Malawi. And uh, it's, it's great to see that opening up as well. So uh, here are a group of the believers who are, they kind of held a convention. They all got together. And again, this is in a remote area, but there's a whole bunch of believers who came together for that uh, meeting. And uh, they were all looking at the camera brothers over on the right-hand side over there. And then they all turned uh, to wave to us, and they wanted to send their greetings and their love and their thanks uh, for receiving uh, the books that they got there. So they're very excited about all that. I just, I just uh, am so blessed to see those pictures there, and uh, those people are uh, excited. Uh, I was talking with Brother Elias today in in uh, Tanzania, and uh, he told me that they had given out already ten thousand dollars worth of Bibles over there. And uh, I said, okay, so everybody's satisfied. And he said, oh no. He said, there's many, many more uh, people would love to have a Bible. And I said, well, we'll just see what we can do uh, to um, see if we can get some more Bibles uh, over to there. Um, this is a uh, just a huge need because uh, many, many converts and new people in there and very few Bibles to go around. So this is all very exciting. All right, let's jump into the Word, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, this. 
whole idea of our default. And uh, if you don't mind, let me give you a couple of screens, about five or six here of a review, all right, very quickly, because we haven't talked about this for a couple of Wednesdays now. And uh, I, I want to just refresh your memory. Uh, we've used four examples, and I want to give you a couple of more tonight uh, before, we, uh, before we move on. And as I began to think about this, uh, there were more and more examples that popped out. So uh, I want to uh, just refresh your memory here, and then we'll look at some examples, because I think in a situation like this or in a topic like this, uh, the best way to define this word uh, of default is to use some examples that we're all familiar with. Now, as, a, as we have defined the word default, it means a pre-selected option uh, that's adopted by a user like in a computer when no alternative is specified. So uh, there are certain things that are just default uh, in, our, in our culture. There's settings that are default settings uh, in, in machines that you use in computers and so forth. Excuse me, and this is something that's very common. We, we're all kind of learning that this is how uh, devices are set up. For instance, if you get a phone, there is a bunch of default settings on there. And you even have buttons on your on your devices to be able to restore things back to the default, back to the where it was at the beginning. Now, the, the great thing about a default is that you can change it. It doesn't have to remain that way. You can change it if you like. The difference between a default and an absolute, which we talked about last week, uh, was something that is regarded uh, as universally valid or right, uh, and can be viewed without relation to other things. So it's true, uh, no matter what anybody says, it, it, it's true regardless. And when we talk about absolute truth, and this is something that uh, is becoming an important thing in our world because uh, many people don't like the whole subject of absolute truth. But it is something that is true in all places at all times, under all circumstances. Uh, it is a fact that cannot be changed. So... We believe that it is a truth that uh, 2 plus 2 is 4, uh, that we are 97 million miles away from the sun, 93 million miles away from the sun. Uh, there's enough DNA in the average person's body to stretch from the sun to Pluto and back 17 times. Uh, one way or another, these are all truths without consideration of circumstances, feelings, or persuasion. It doesn't matter how we feel about those things. They are true. Um, we could say that, uh, you know, America's constitution is a, um, uh, is a, is a great doctrine to be governed by a great document to be governed by. I was speaking as a guest in a classroom, uh, the other day, and I was just sharing with some, with some kids who've never been outside the, the country, uh, about how good our uh, constitution is and, and our frame of government, um, and it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to try to explain that, uh, how, how different it is in comparison to other countries, especially like communist countries or something, or countries with dictators or monarchs, where monarchs rule, like in Saudi Arabia. You have a religion and a monarch or a dictator or a, a regime, like a communist regime that runs in China. And uh, we're very much used to our freedoms, like freedom of the press, freedom of opposition, freedom of speech. Uh, freedom to worship, freedom to travel and to move around. And uh, those things are, uh, you know, definite uh, advantages for us. So we we hold to the fact that uh, 
the, the Constitution is, is a, a good thing, and that's true. Um, it's not just our feeling about it, but it has endured a civil war. It's endured lots of other uh, things through the ages. So it's a very important thing when we talk about um, absolute truth. The most important absolute truth there is is in the Bible. And as I've mentioned this quote every service, all true prophets, all true Christians, all true believers stay with that word. No matter what anybody says, you stay right with that word. And that is the most important and the most accurate, uh, the, the most uh, important absolute truth there is in all of creation is the word of God. Now, we hold dear to that, as a lot of people may disagree with you about that, but I believe that the Word of God is true, it's accurate, uh, and it is uh, very important. But to a believer, it's life and death. And so it's something that uh, is very, very important to us. That's that's self-evident. We, we don't have any problem with that at all. We believe that. Now, <clears throat> as we have mentioned, the, the problem is, you know, we, we all would say if we did a survey— uh, we all would say, my goodness, uh, all, all of us believe the Bible. But I will guarantee you that I could give you certain scriptures uh, or certain passages there, and if I uh, put them up on the screen here and let everybody comment on them, we would probably get a hundred different ideas about what those scriptures actually mean. And it is a lot because of how that we uh, were raised, the churches that we came out of, uh, in our personal background, and there's certain things that we like and certain things that we don't like, even though we would say we believe in the Scripture, uh, we would still might have some differing opinions about it or what it actually meant. And so there was another part of this that we introduced last week, and that is the mind of Christ. Uh, Paul wrote that he that, in verse 15 here, he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so God's mind is set. He knows the end from the beginning. And he doesn't change his mind about anything at all. And we are privileged to know right things. We are privileged to have an understanding that many people do not have. And it is, in, in, our, in our way of saying it, we are able to tap into the mind of Christ. Uh, we had a prophet in this last day who did the same thing. And as we study the scripture and the Holy Spirit's the revealer of his own word, we we have a sense of what God wants done with that word. So our opinion actually becomes less important than what the Holy Spirit lays on our hearts. And that is something that you have to cultivate. You have to, uh, you know, you have to be sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit uh, just making sure you understand what the Word of God means. Now, let me just say this humorously, that when God separated man from woman, he took out of the man the ability for a man to know what other people are thinking. That all went to the women. And uh, uh, many times my wife is very good at, at uh, saying to me, uh, did you see the response of that person or the reaction of that person or uh, this person may have been uh, really happy about this or really unhappy about this cer certain thing. And uh, I very often I miss that. As a matter of fact, I'd say most times I miss that, but she's very sensitive to that. There is something about a woman, she has, just has that, I, I guess it's a, in more of an emotional uh, characteristic to be able to 
pick up or sense, uh, you know, when something is, is happening in a, in, in a person's response or in a person's heart, in the child's heart. Very interesting to watch. Um, I'm very much less sensitive than my wife is to those things. And I, I believe that as the bride of Christ, as the people of God, we have to develop a sensitivity to knowing that that's the mind of Christ. So it's not a curiosity when uh, we, we think about God revealing his word. It's not just because uh, it, it's, it's a verse of scripture that's intriguing. It is, it is rather sometimes just this subtle feeling that you know that that's of God. And there are things that are revealed to us sometimes that are not always pleasant. There might be something you have to do or something you have to make right or something you have to repent for. Um, it's, it's a conscience that's working. And a nudging of the Holy Spirit maybe to do something or to go to somebody or to admonish someone. Um, many times we feel that. And that is the privilege of knowing what's right. And then... With that privilege comes the responsibility to act on what you know is right. And so the mind of Christ allows us to be able to tap into that expression of God that gives us that direction that we need. So that may sound a little bit uh, intellectual there, but uh, he, that is, he that is spiritual, that's who Paul is talking to. The people who mind the things of the Spirit— they are wanting to know the mind of Christ. So it's not just what's said on paper. I can Anyone can read that. I can read that. It is having the mind of Christ to know what is God really telling us? What is God really saying to us? And how can we know that this is right? Uh, not because everybody's doing it, but but because it really is what's on the heart of God. And we want to know that. So for believers, we want to go that extra step. We want to have more than just the knowledge of it. We want to have the heart of it. And and that's what's really great. That's what's really wonderful, to have the heart or the mind of Christ uh, to be able to know what he wants done with the word of God. And we we look at this word instruct here, which we find back in that, uh, in that passage of scripture, uh, who had known the mind of the Lord that he might instruct him. That word instruct means to be able to cause it to come together, uh, to be able to knit it together, and to be able to compare it to other things so that we know it's right. Um, you know, to cause a person to unite with one in a conclusion or the same opinion. And so it, it's an important idea that, um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit has a way of saying something, and he just has his, his own way of bringing it together into a clear picture. And we may not look at that, obviously, like you can imagine, um, you know, uh, for instance, you know, here's, here's a, an example back in the book of Genesis, when Joseph told his brothers and his father about his dreams, you remember about the stars bowing down and the sheaves of wheat bowing down. And, you know, he, he makes a pronouncement there and he doesn't explain it. Uh, he just leaves it until it's a time for fulfillment, a season of fulfillment. Many years later, it's fulfilled. But when it's fulfilled, then you know what? It comes together in their minds. This is what that meant. And they just have this solid understanding, this solid awareness that that truly was of God. Um, 
I can imagine in a negative sense, you know, when the people outside the ark felt the raindrops on their head, it all came together for them. And they concluded that they were wrong and Noah was right. So the word instruct is the ability of the Holy Spirit to take things that would seemingly be loose ends and pull them together into a clear picture and put it together in your mind. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. He can take pieces of the puzzle together. And uh, I often use this example of Brother Branham talking about the rapture and going back in the Old Testament and how he took Psalm 27 and then he took 1 Thessalonians 4 and then Matthew 24. And he takes all these different scriptures and he brings them together in a clear picture in a sermon in an hour and a half. And he brings it together and gives us a unity of understanding there and we come to a right conclusion. Ah, there were raptures in the Old Testament, raptures in the New Testament. This is what happened. This is what's going to happen. We get a clear picture. And uh, it displaces what we understood about the rapture. We all thought maybe we were, uh, you know, going to go straight up and like uh, with rockets strapped to our backs or whatever else, whatever other idea we had. And here he comes and lays it out by the scripture. And the Holy Spirit has a way of allowing you to tap into that so that you got this solid feeling, this solid assurance, you know what, this is right. This is of God. And for you to know that something is of God is a great, great blessing to have. So again, adding to this, and we t covered this last week, uh, the, the mind is that uh, capacity that a human being has to be able to perceive and understand and to be able to discern between uh, good and evil it's the particular mode of thinking that uh, judges and being able to sort things out. So this is not just imaginations of all kinds of crazy things. Uh, this is the faculty that God wants to use. Now, we often discount or dis dis disregard the mind because we say it's the devil's um, territory. Well, you know, in a sense, it is. He has access to it, but God wants to use it. God wants to give you the ability to reason uh, together with him uh, because the Bible says in Isaiah, come, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord, to be able to correctly understand and interpret and perceive divine things. And, and that's what God wants you to do. Um, so, you know, you, you, you have a mind and if you give it to God and give, uh, give the channels of your mind to God, he will use it. If you give it to Satan, he certainly will use it. So he has access to it. But God wants to use your mind as well. As a matter of fact, we find in Romans 12, very common scripture, <clears throat> that Paul says that we should uh, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which means <clears throat> a complete change of thinking. And that's why I'm on this subject altogether uh, about the default, because uh, there are things that we thought about, things that we uh, just hung on to because that was our default understanding. It's never really been challenged. It's never really been changed or altered or updated with the word of God uh, because it's the default value or the default understanding, and it's what we hang on to. So, you know, uh, we would think, well, uh, for instance, you know, uh, we might uh, think— if we're over uh, 50 years old, we may think a certain thing is worldly. Um, and in reality, then we come across a quote and find where Brother Branham uh, never called something worldly. But we think it is because as a part of our growing up or our culture, 
back 50 years ago, that would have been considered inappropriate back then. And it may not be uh, so strange today. It may not be so uncommon today. Uh, but we have a default view of something. And uh, it, it would be... Um, it would be inappropriate for us to hang on to that when the Word of God challenges our understanding, and that's what I'm trying to get to. Hope you're following me here tonight, just in this little uh, introduction here. And so, uh, when we when we come to truth, like we read in Proverbs 12, the lip of truth shall be established forever. Uh, there's a boundary and like a vow when a when a, a boy asks a girl to marry her him, and uh, it, it's a vow. There's a line that's drawn by those words, and it's important for people to hold to that, that truth that they have expressed, and that's what the idea uh, means there. Okay, so last week, let me just uh, give you three three more slides here in review, um, and, and again, I don't want to be long because we're just doing a, a little study here on Wednesday night, but we talked about the cause of trouble, and uh, <clears throat> when we, we talked about it, uh, you remember the default understanding for most people is this way, that if you're under um, distress, if things are breaking down, then you know what? There must be secret sin somehow in your life. There must be some error or some kind of a wrong committed in your life if there is uh, a um, you know tragedy if there's loss, if there's a fire, if there's a financial breakdown, if there's uh, a death or whatever else, then, then, hey, there must be sin in your life. And in some instances, that is true. Now, let me say something here, just in a, and it comes to mind, so I just want to drop this in. We can look at uh, Brother Branham's life, for instance, where God told him to go with the Pentecostals. You remember, and his mother-in-law talked him out of that. And as a result of that, Brother Branham lost his wife and his mother. I will tell you this, that, that in my understanding, God trains his prophets differently than he does us. And God was really trying to teach Brother Branham certain things, uh, just like God was trying to teach David certain things when he was out in the desert, that he should touch down mine anointed to do my prophets no harm. And the schooling of a prophet can be a very harsh thing. And we had better be careful about taking examples of the way God dealt with Brother Branham and applying them to our lives. Because if you think about it, how many times have you disobeyed God? Maybe God told you something to do and, and you've disregarded that for one reason or another. And you haven't lost a wife and a child. Uh, because the the way that God deals with a prophet very often is different, even if the principle is is the same that we reap what we sow and it's better to to obey, better than sacrifice. The training of a prophet is a, is a harsh thing, uh, because God wants those men to stand and absolutely uh, say the exact truth without any interpretation, without any filter, uh, without any pre thought, any shadow at all. He wants that prophet to be a true spokesman. And so the, the dealings uh, of, of God with a prophet are very often different. So, you know, sometimes it's easy to say, well, this happened to Brother Bram, so this will happen over here. Um, hey, there, there are many times that God does not deal with us as harshly 
as um, as he does with, with with prophets in their training. And uh, that's an important thing to remember because it's easy sometimes to pronounce judgment on people and say, well, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. But you know what? God deals with us. I will say, I'll have to testify that God deals with us a lot according to his grace and his mercy. He surely does. God does not deal with us uh, according to what we deserve. He deals with us in many ways with great grace and mercy. And I'm thankful for that. So don't jump, jump, jump too quick to, uh, to judgment here. But you remember in the scripture we read in Job chapter 4, uh, when Job's comforters, and I use that word comforters loosely, uh, they came to Job and they said, remember, I pray thee, this is verse 7, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Why would God deal with innocent people? And again, this is how God actually deals with the prophet. Uh, even as I have seen they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same by the blast of God they perish. So their their default understanding of trouble is, is that if there's trouble, there has to be sin. If there is smoke, there has to be fire. And they're convinced of that. And yet Job was a righteous man. He was not guilty of any kind of wrongdoing at all. As a matter of fact, he did the opposite. He went to the other extreme. And so uh, this was their conclusion. This is what they uh, you know, uh, concluded because of their default understanding. We define this as a syllogism, uh, meaning that uh, it is an extremely subtle and sophisticated or deceptive argument that if all A is C, all B is A, then therefore B is C. That's the uh, scientific way of expressing it. Uh, therefore, you can jump to the wrong conclusion. That's all that means. And you're better off, like the Bible says, to be slow to speak and be quick to hear. And before you get on somebody else's case, you should jump in their shoes and walk a mile. You will have a new pair of shoes, but you, you're going to have a different sense of what that person's going through when you walk the mile in their shoes. You have to empathize. You have to get in their place before you really render judgment. So remember, here's what's important about a situation like with Job, that God is looking at this very differently than they're looking at it, but God is not correcting their understanding at this point. Um, the, the people who, uh, in the days of Noah, for instance, they had a default understanding about weather. And Noah was given something that was higher than that. And God never corrected them. He, he attempted to through the preaching of the word, but he never corrected that personally for them until it rained. And we know that God is the interpreter of his own word. And so you don't want to be, you don't want to be here too late, for instance, when the world slides into tribulation. We believe it's coming. The default understanding of the world very often is that another election is going to fix it. We're going to go on and on. The world's not going to end. They don't believe the Bible that says the world's going to end, and yet the world's going to end. The world as we know it is going to change drastically and it's going to end. You have to let your thinking be shaped by the word of God and by the truth. So we're going to shake off that default value and we're going to uh, adopt the, the teaching of the word of God. That becomes our thinking. That becomes our absolute. That becomes our, our direction. Now, interestingly enough, I found, uh, I found Brother Branham uh, in, in this week and I was looking and studying there. Brother Branham used the word presume. 
And he talked about that many times. He preached on the, the subject of presuming. And uh, he, he said some really interesting things about it. And you remember how he defined it. When we presume something, he said, you're venturing without authority. So, you know, you may say, well, I'm going to... Um, uh, I'm going to venture into a, um, a hard part of town and uh, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Well, you're presuming you're going to be okay. Uh, you may not be. You really don't know for sure, but you're making the assumption that that what I'm thinking is true. And Brother Random said, when you do that, you venture without authority. Now, if God tells you to do it, that's one thing. But when you, when you venture without authority, you're doing this based on your own assumption. And I, I went back and I looked at that word presume again, and it also has the definition that you can take something for granted or suppose that it is true. You can suppose things are the way they are. Uh, legally, for instance, if you assume that's, that uh, someone would be guilty in the absence of, of proof, um, you know, and you could say, man, it, it sure looks like he's guilty. Sure looks like he's at fault. And even though you don't have any evidence for that, you're making the assumption, you're presuming that that person is actually guilty and they may not be. And so presuming is, is doing that. You're convinced that you're right, but you may not be. It's real evidence that makes a difference. It's real evidence that shows the truth of what's gone on. And so Brother Branham, presume, uh, he, he preached on presuming many times. And, uh, you know, he, he wanted people to understand that you can presume you're okay with God, and maybe you're not. Or you can presume the Bible means this, or God's going to do that. And you can absolutely be incorrect in your presumption. You may look at quote A, quote B, and quote C, and put it together and make yourself a sentence there. And uh, like I've told you before, I've had people have come up and stood in front of me with quotes about marriage and divorce, proving by the quotes uh, that, uh, you know, they were perfectly all right uh, preaching, being a pastor if they were married two or three times, you know, and they had the words saying what they wanted them to say, and they were presuming it's okay if I can pick words out of Brother Branham's sermons that make it sound okay, but it wasn't okay because they had really missed the mind of Christ. And uh, when it comes to the suffering question here, uh, Brother Branham talks about uh, how that, that is a real stumbling block to so many people uh, that uh, God knows our tribulation, and as many times people go through things, uh, how can God be just and loving if he stands by and watches his people suffer? I remember one time Ravi Zacharias, who's gone on now, he died a little while ago, uh, but he... Uh, he said that whenever he travels in, in people ask him questions uh, in his talks and so forth, he said that was the most common question that people uh, asked him was, how can God be God and there be suffering in the world and God be a good God and there be suffering? And so we can deal with that question a little bit later. But a lot of people would, would somehow presume or they would have a default understanding that uh, if you're a Christian, you're not going to have problems. Uh, and if Job had problems, you know what? He must have had sin in his life. And there are certain conclusions that we make that are not really uh, accurate at all. And, and Brother Branham goes on to say in Malachi chapter 1 there, he says they could not Israel could not figure out God's love, and they thought that love meant no suffering. They thought that love meant a baby with parental care. But God said that his love was elective love. 
Let me tell you, as human beings in this world, we suffer because of the fall. As Christians, we suffer in this world. We are going to a world that has no suffering. And that is the promise. But in this life, God never lets you go through those things alone. And that's the beautiful promise that we have. All right. <clears throat> Let's take another example here, just as a quick one. All right. And uh, I want to get to something else. But let's take a quick example here. Christians don't have any money or Christians are poor. Uh, there's a lot of people who feel like that when it comes to money uh, or comes to prosperity, that, you know what, we shouldn't have anything to do with that. We need to draw back from that and not have anything at all. But we'll find just very quickly here, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, uh, that's not what the Bible says. Proverbs 13, a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. So that means that in our elder years, in our August years, we should not become a liability for our family, but rather be a blessing to our family, if at all possible. Uh, this is our grandchildren that we're talking about. So we should be doing something to try to uh, bless our grandchildren uh as an inheritance. Third John chapter one, this is New Testament. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. That word prosper there, it means to grant a prosperous journey. It also means to be successful. You can read the definition there. Uh, God wants you to be successful. He wants you to be profitable. He wants you to be a uh, good steward over what we what we have, what we possess, what God's allowed us to be able to enjoy. Um, I, I don't think God wants us to be a waster. I don't think God wants us to be shackled with debt all of our life. Uh, I believe he wants you to be successful. I believe that um, he, he wants you to prosper in your in your journey through life and to be able to bless others. And to be able to have the right attitude towards uh, your success in life. Uh, but having, having success and being able to leave an inheritance, I find are commands in Scripture and they are promises in Scripture. They're not judgments. Now, let me give you two examples here, all right? And these are two that uh, I think are great examples the book of Chronicles, chapter 29. And if you don't mind turning to Second, First Chronicles, chapter 29, uh, I'd like to read a little passage there. So if you have your Bible tonight, go to First Chronicles, chapter 9, and I'll give you a moment there uh, to, uh, to find that. The last chapter of the book of Chronicles talks about how that David, in his older age, he pulls together everybody and he throws a feast as everybody uh, come together. And uh, he's making an announcement to them. And not only that, but he issues kind of a challenge to them. Uh, he wants to build a temple. And he knows that God told him because he was a man of war and shed much blood, he's not able to build a temple. But he said, I'm going to raise up your son, and he's going to do it, which was Solomon. Solomon, we know, was a very wealthy man with all the wives that he had. Uh, he was a very wealthy man and uh, prospered in, in many ways. And uh, so David now is in uh, the... the uh, in the palace, and he's uh, got all the people around him, uh, many, many hundreds of, of people around him. If you have your Bible now, First Corinthians, First Chronicles, chapter twenty-nine, verse one. Furthermore, it says that David the king said unto all the congregation, Solomon, my son, 
whom alone God hath chosen as yet young and tender. And the work is great, for the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. So this is a great work. This is an important work. This is something big because it's for God. Now I have prepared with all my might for the house of my God, the gold for the things to be made of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, brass for the things of brass, iron for the things of iron, wood for the things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones, divers colors, and all manner of precious stones and marble in abundance. He says, moreover, in verse 3, I've set my affection to the house of my God, and I have my own proper good, I have of my own proper good of gold and silver, which I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for thy holy house. So David's got uh, gold and silver in the treasury. He's got brass. He's got uh, onyx stones. He's got uh, silver. He's got all of that he's given. Plus, he's given a personally there uh, uh, of his own wealth for the house of God because he believes it's that important then. And then he asked the question in verse 5, in the bottom of it there, and who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? That means let's take an offering, and if you want to give to this great work, you, let's do it. And in verse 6, then the chief of the fathers and princes of the tribes of Israel and the captains of thousands and of hundreds and the rulers of the king's work offered willingly and gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents, 10,000 drams of, and, and of silver, 10,000 talents, brass, 18,000 talents, 100,000 talents of iron. My goodness, verse 8, with them precious stones were found to give them to the treasure of the house of the Lord. Verse 9, then the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly. So David does it, then the elders do it, now the people do it. Because with a perfect heart they offered willing to, willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy. Hey, they're going to take up an offering. And this is no minor offering. They're taking up quite a, quite a collection there. Now, if you want to know how much all those drams of silver are and all of those sheaves of iron and so forth, here's where it is. In his speech, David cast the vision for the gold temple with all the trimmings. And King David ended his speech with the announcement of his gift, the money raised that night in the fundraiser was estimated to be the equivalent today in U.S. dollars of $400 million was given to build a temple. This is an important work. This is something that David's very excited about and passionate about, and they have collected over $400 million in order to do this work. Now, Read on, chapter 29, here I'm reading verse 10. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation, and David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, for thine forever and ever. And thine, O Lord, is the greatness and power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee. And thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. David realized that all wealth and honor comes from God, and you know what? God's not afraid to give it. We should not be afraid to give it back and to use it for a righteous cause and be passionate about it. And that's exactly what David does. So the scripture is very clear that the wealthy have obligations uh, with the wealth that they have. It's not so that someone can hoard it and uh, become richer still. But we should uh, treat others with fairness. 
uh, we should also uh, not use uh, the law or our position to defraud the poor. We should not take advantage of another person's misfortune. We should make sure we preserve the dignity of the poor by providing opportunities for work. And these are just some of the obligations that we have. I have talked to many wealthy brothers in this message um, who have taken that obligation very seriously that they want to be the best stewards they possibly can over what God's given to them because they know that God has blessed them. They know that. So they want to have the right attitude. And I will guarantee you, it is not money that is the problem. It's the love of money that becomes the problem. And so therefore, uh, when we make the assumption that all, uh, all Christians are poor and that we're always in debt and everything else, uh, I just don't find the scripture bears witness to that. I'm sorry, uh, but I don't. Let me give you a New Testament example, and this is Acts chapter 16. There was a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira. This is where Lydia was from, which worshiped God. She heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Same chapter down in verse 40. And they went out of the prison. This is when Paul and Silas were in the prison, and they were bound there, and they had the earthquake. And they came out of the prison, and they entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Lydia, all right, and who she was. I, I found this to be very interesting. Uh, she was the first uh, uh, convert of Paul uh, during his stay at Philippi, which we just read. And she was a, a Jewish proselyte at the time of uh, Paul when he came there. And he, she was by the side of the, the river when Paul came through, and that preaching of the gospel had just touched her heart, and she was converted and so forth. Uh Thyatira, she was from Thyatira, and Thyatira was famous for its dyeing, D-Y-E-I-N-G, works. Uh, they dyed fabric. And Lydia was connected with this trade as a seller either of dye or of dyed goods. So therefore, we know that she was a person of considerable wealth. It's interesting, Paul never corrects this. He never says, all right, you have to give away everything you have. Uh, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you need to, uh, you know, distribute some of your wealth and come and follow me. And his pride brought out the fact that he had a problem with the love that he had for the money that he had accumulated in life. But here's Lydia, and she was of considerable wealth. How wealthy? Well, let's take a look. When a person was a dealer in cloth, like Lydia was, she sold that cloth, uh, for roughly in in the paragraph here in U.S. dollars of $126,000 and some change per troy ounce. So that's, I mean, that's a really expensive dye and an expensive fabric that is made with that kind of dye. Each ounce required 3,500 mollusks to procure and only the highly privileged people could afford it. Purple dye was a symbol of power and honor. It was the most expensive sought-after dye in the Roman world. She had plenty of capital to deal in purple dye in the making of purple garments. She had to have. She would be dealing with royalty. She'd be dealing with upper-class nobility. And these were the people who would have had 
the, the money to even talk to somebody like Lydia. So this is the kind of situation that she was in. I mean, uh, she was she was certainly a, a businesswoman of some sort and a woman of wealth. And uh, God really touched her heart and she came into the message. There's not many rich, not many noble, not many mighty, but there are some. And uh, she was a person that, you know, seemed to be and, and continue to be a real supporter of the work of the Apostle Paul. So let's look. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Stop. If you stop there, you would say, Okay, I should not have a bank account, and I should not have any assets here on the earth at all. Or we should sell our homes and just rent. And then verse 20 says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do, break, uh, do not break through and steal. All right, here's the key in the next verse. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So the, the key is making sure that your heart is not wrapped around riches in this world. So much so that you don't want to embrace the things of God. So much so that you get idolizing those things and you depend on those things more than you depend upon God. And this is what Jesus is warning us about. Not that you should not have a car or a house or a bank account or a Roth IRA or whatever it is that you have. He's not saying that. He is saying, though, that you should not invest from your heart into those things and consider that to be my treasure. Hey, listen, no matter how much God has blessed us, our treasure is in heaven. Our, our value is in heaven, and we should make sure that we always have and maintain a true dependence on God, no matter how much we have or how much we don't have. Because anyone who has a lot of uh, assets in this world, they will tell you that that's not the source of happiness. Having peace with God is the thing that makes you content. Peace with God is the thing that makes you really happy. Peace with God and fellow man is what makes you have joy in your heart. And so uh, it is something that Jesus warns us about. Don't don't make earthly possessions your treasure. Don't don't set your store. Don't set your faith in natural treasures for sure. All right, let's let's go a little bit further here. Brother Branham he he makes a statement now in 1963. He said it used to be wrong to dress a certain way, worldly way. It used to be that people would act like that were excommunicated from society, and he says now they can't be accepted or brought into society until they do it. So it depends on where your treasure is. That's where your heart is also. Do you can see the problem. The problem is that people, they want to have that acceptance and they want to have that popularity and they want to fit in because everybody else is doing it. And it says it's because they don't want to, to take the inoculation of the filling of the Holy Spirit, old-fashioned, God-saved, camp-meeting holiness. You must remember, if you love the Lord with all your heart, you'll live clean and pure. So this is, a, to me, this is a great uh, lesson for us that, uh, once you become inoculated by the Holy Spirit, um, you know what? Our heart is not set on what everybody else is doing. Our treasure is not in this earth. Our treasure is not in popularity and looks. Our treasure, rather, remains in heaven. All right, let's look at another example, and I'm going to close with this. I don't mean to be long here, but let me just give, introduce this to you, and I want you just to be thoughtful now for a moment here. There is a default thinking, and this is one of the important ones I want to get at, and I'll deal with it a little bit more. I'm in the message, so I'm okay. 
There's a lot of young people who are raised, they were born to uh, believers who believe the message and feel like because I'm around it and I've been in it all my life and I'm in a message church and I have a message haircut and I have a message library and my phone is message sanctified, then I'm okay. And that is a default belief. Remember this, 1960, Brother Branham said, when you die, remember it doesn't change your spirit. It only changes your dwelling place. Whatever type of spirit you got in you, that's the place you, it, will, it will go to. And sin will never enter, enter into heaven. If it was true that all you had to do was sit in a message church, then why would we lose young people when they get their license or they go to college, they get a little independence and a little freedom, they get choosing friends. They're not fellowshipping with their family as much anymore. And all of a sudden, we don't see them anymore. If attending a message church assured your salvation, then we would lock the doors and make sure nobody got out. But it doesn't work that way. You can deceive yourself with a default understanding that if you're around the message all your life, then you must be a believer. I want to assure you I want to make it very, very clear that a person needs to be born again. They need to have an encounter with God, and nothing replaces that. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have not we prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus does not say, well, you didn't do those works. He doesn't deny that at all. Because there are lots of people who can be anointed to do things in a religious way. But that's not the same as someone having a real experience with God. I know God's dealing with some of our young people in our church. And I, I just felt strongly just to include this tonight at the end of this, and I want to elaborate a little bit more. Let me leave you with a quote or two in a scripture. Brother Bram's talking about Moses here, and he's talking about the burning bush. Now, we know that Moses was one of the meekest men in all the earth. And so when Moses was confronted in the early part of Exodus, after his 40 years in the palace, he run from the presence of Pharaoh without an experience. He must have had a knowledge of what his job in life was to do. He must have had an awareness from his mother who told him he was born special. He was not an ignorant person, so he would have had an awareness of the times they live in, the promises that God made to Abraham. He would have, been had, he would have had an awareness of that. But he didn't have courage. He didn't have the boldness that he had after he met the burning bush. But now watch what Brother Random says. He ran from the presence of Pharaoh without an experience, but with an experience, he walked into his face, face to face, and told him, I'll smite this land with plagues unless you let this people go. He was not afraid. Why? Because he'd met God face to face. All right, what's he telling us? Brother and sister, there's a secret place that every believer should go, backside of the desert on those sacred sands. No doctor of theology, no Greek or Hebrew scholar, no seminary, If you, nobody can talk you out of it. If you ever meet God on those sacred sands, Satan cannot put his feet on those sands. You know you met God. You've got something real. 
What was it? You talked to God yourself and you had an experience. I would like to say this, that I believe every believer before we leave here has got to have that kind of an experience. You're going to need that kind of experience before you get out of here because we have, in a sense, as a national group or as a an entity, you know, uh, uh, the Bride of Christ, we have never really faced opposition face-to-face like believers have in other ages. We've got resistance, but a lot of times the resistance we have is among ourselves, uh, among other believers, disagreeing about different things. The thing that's going to hold you is not being in the palace for 40 years. The thing that's going to hold you is your encounter with God in the burning bush. And you need to have that experience. That experience will lead you to water baptism. It will lead you to live a different kind of a life. It will lead you uh, onto the place where you can have the mind of Christ and you can receive a revelation of his word. But it begins, it begins in the same way that Moses had this beginning where he met God. Ephesians chapter 2 explains that you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Hey, as good as I preach or as good as any other preacher preaches, as good as a person as you are, we do not have quickening power. Quickening power comes from the Holy Ghost. Verse 2, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now work, that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now let me tell you something about that verse. You can walk very uh, carefully and respectfully in a church all your life. Now, it doesn't mean that if you've been raised in a church that, you know, you're, you're, uh, you know, a bad person or anything like that. I thank God for our young people. I thank God for my grandchildren that are being raised in good churches. Uh, and I think it's a great environment and it's the right place to be because Brother Random said it's the atmosphere uh, that God needs to come into uh, that is so important. And so, uh, it is a great thing that we have the atmosphere that we have in the church and we have young people being birthed and raised in the church and then parents at home, uh, you know, doing the same thing, raising their children, trying to create the best atmosphere they possibly can. But being in or near the atmosphere is not being, not, not uh, having an encounter with God. It requires this experience, but you can walk respectfully and you can walk graciously in those early years. But if there's a spirit of disobedience there, by virtue of your natural birth, it's going to come out. Unless there's a new spirit, a new nature that's placed there. Verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Moses turned aside to see what this strange thing was. He just simply sat down, he, he turned aside, and he watched the fire burning, strange fire. He was not just curious. This is what I want, want you to be sure of. He didn't take a leaf off the plant, like Brother Branham says sometimes, and go down to the lab and analyze it and figure out why it didn't burn. He didn't do that. He had this assurance that somehow this is a supernatural event. This is God on the scene. This is God knocking on my heart. And God spoke to him and said, Moses, take off your shoes for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. 
Now, Moses didn't say, well, Lord, I'll take off my hat instead. God didn't say hat. God said, take off your shoes. And many people say, well, I'll just join the church. Well, that isn't what Christ said. You must be born again. Not how much you join the church, but you got to be born again. And Moses took off his shoes and came in reverence, and that's the way you had to approach God. So believe me, when he met this, when he met this supernatural presence at the burning bush, Moses knew in reverence and in respect he had to deal with this and he had to approach that carefully because somehow or another he sensed there was a supernatural element about this. And then it all came together for him. It all was brought together in his heart, in his mind. I know what this is. This is that promise that mom talked about. This is the Bible stories that I heard in the palace. This is the promise of God that God made through Father Abraham. This is the fulfillment of the scripture, let my people go. All of these things now are coming together, and he, he has that experience because he meets God. He's reverent. He doesn't have an explanation for everything that's going on right now, but he doesn't need it because he's got this assurance anchored in his heart. I am right where God wants me to be. I am empowered now to do what God wants me to do. Pharaoh can't talk me out of this. Nobody can deter me on the journey now. This is that which has been spoken. He's got it. You don't need to give him anything else. He's got it. You don't need to convince him of a thing. He's got it. You just need to feed that. That's all. He's got it. Don't presume it's right, your experience. The Bible tells you what's right and wrong. Don't presume it's all right because you had a sensation. Take inventory of yourself this morning. Look and see what we believe. If God said a certain thing, and if we tally with it, well, you say, well, I'll be put out of my church if I did this. Well, which is more to you, your, your God or your church? Don't presume without an experience. Don't believe things by default. Don't face the tribulation with the default understanding that everything's okay. If you've never been baptized correctly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the, with repentance and remission of your sins, you have not been baptized correctly. I feel in my heart quite strongly that God is dealing with more of our young people and in this strange and unusual time with the, with the restrictions that we have and the virus and the whole world affected by this, I think it's amazing how God in his mercy is still dealing with hearts. And I, I'm done. I, I'm finished here for tonight. I, I just want to say this, that I, I just want to pray for you. Uh, I, want to, I want you that are listening tonight just to really think about this and don't get caught up with just thinking uh, this is okay because it's always been okay. That's a default. Don't assume everything is all right because you haven't done anything wrong. That's, the, that's a default understanding too. Brother Branham used the word presuming there, and that was his word back in that day. A lot of people would just say, well, you know, this is how we do it in our church. And they presume that that's okay. 
when the Word of God is presented to your mind and you can compare it and compare your life to the Word of God, a real believer is going to lean towards the Word even if it causes him discomfort, even if he's going to have to step out and now make a commitment. So don't presume or don't take the default understanding. Take what's right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity we have, Lord, to be able to consider this unusual word, Lord, this word default, and how that sometimes, Lord, things are set for us, but they can be changed. They can be brought in line with the absolute, and we're thankful for that. I pray now in the name of Jesus Christ that you would grant to us the courage to step out on your word. I pray, dear God, that you would continue to deal with hearts. I pray, Father, that those who maybe have not done things just exactly right, that they would line themselves up now so that they have the same consolation Moses had. And that is a deep-seated assurance, not a curiosity, but a deep-seated assurance that this is God. And I am right with God. And I want to walk with God now. May, may, Lord, those that hear this tonight, may they have that assurance in their heart that they are right with God. And Lord, I just pray that you would deal with hearts in the closing hours of time. May you deal with hearts. Have your way among us, Lord, I pray. We love you. We thank you. We know that you care about us. And we ask, Lord, for your blessing upon those that are sick and needy tonight. I commit the people to you. Pray that you would Continue, Lord, to put a hedge of protection around about us. And Lord, bless our gathering, I pray, on the weekend. May we come together in faith and in joy and in real love. I commit the people and their needs to you in Jesus Christ's lovely name. Amen. And amen. God bless you, saints. Thanks for coming. Trust something that was said tonight will be a blessing to you. God bless.